Let's pray everyone getting this message tonight. God, we just, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your presence. And tonight, God, as we go into this message, we don't want to hear my thoughts, my words, or my opinions. We just want to hear your truth. Speak through me. Say what you want to say. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. Uh, it's a good night already. <clears throat> it's already 7.10. I'll have you out by 9. Let's go. <clears throat> well, last week, just to give you a recap, and some of the beginning of this message will be a little bit of a recap of the past two weeks, but we need to do it in order to get into this message tonight. Last week, we talked about God as the good seer, that he sees with good eyes. He looks on everything and has a heart to redeem anything and everything if we would just respond to him in obedience, amen? He sees every transaction, planned or not, good or not, and says, I can redeem that if you will just be obedient to what I want. And really what God wants is simply one thing. He wants us to seek him. He wants us to know him. He wants intimacy with the sons and daughters that he has redeemed. Amen? Intimacy, being fully exposed, vulnerable, dependent on God. Knowing his eyes are good, his goal is always redemption. His goal is to reveal true you to you. I'm going to get in a little bit more of that tonight. And he invites us into this intimate relationship, this face-to-face encounter with the Father. And as we grow in wanting to know him more and more, we're going to learn how to do something. Learn how to follow him as, the, as his winds blow. Jesus compares the operation of the Holy Spirit to the wind. It's not up there, but in John 3, 8, it says that the wind blows wherever it wants. How many of you know that? And you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going to go. And he says, Holy Spirit moves like that. In that specific passage, he's referring to people getting saved and coming to know Christ. That the way the Holy Spirit does that, no one can really put a mark on it. No one really knows where, when he comes, where he comes, where he wants to go. It's just that he, he does what he wants to do as he wants to do it. And we can either catch the wind or not. It brings a whole uh, deeper meaning to that song we sing sometimes, Catch the Wind. How many of you want to catch the wind? How many of you want to say, I, I want to get to a place in my walk with God when the Holy Spirit... Whoosh, blows, I know exactly that it's him and I want to go there. How many of you want to get to that place in your life? Amen. If there was no wind, the earth itself would be stagnant. You couldn't take a sailboat on the ocean. You wouldn't go anywhere. The waves wouldn't move. The leaves and the trees wouldn't blow. Seasons wouldn't come. It would just be a stillness. And if we don't learn how to move with the winds of the Holy Spirit, that is exactly going, it's going to be the state of the church. A stagnant body, not moving, not going anywhere, looking like death when it should look like the best living thing on the planet. In Genesis 3.8, this is a little bit of review, it says, When the cool evening breezes were blowing... The man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. This is right after they took of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. So we see as the people of God 
that you can do one of two things when the wind blows and reveals the presence of God. You can submit to God or you can hide from God. The word here for uh, Holy Spirit, ruach, means spirit, breath, and most accurately, guess what? Wind. In Genesis, the earth was formless and the wind, the Holy Spirit of God, was hovering over the earth. So as the wind blew, it was revealing the presence of God. Does that make sense? Well, in Acts 2, it says, suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty what? Windstorm. Keep up up there. And it filled the house where they were sitting. Immediately, they were filled. What were they filled with? Not necessarily that there was an evidence of tongues, but as they were filled, they were equipped with the gift they needed to accomplish an assignment in that area. The gift needed at that time was that there was people with 15 different dialects. God wanted to communicate one message to all of them. So God said, I need them to be able to speak in language that they had no education or knowledge of. And because they were seeking God and the wind blew, they were filled with his spirit and they were able to do things that they could not do on their own accord for the purposes of God's assignments being accomplished. You see, Acts 2, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, was a restoration. It was a restoration to the response that Adam should have had. Because in Genesis 3, when the wind blew, Adam and Eve should not have hid from God. They should have come before him, fully exposed, vulnerable, here we are. In Acts 2, the disciples, the people of God in the upper room, when the wind blew, they didn't hide because it was strange. They didn't hide because they thought they were unworthy. When the wind blew, they submitted to the wind. And because they submitted to the wind, tongues like cloven fire were dancing above their heads, and they all started speaking in languages that they never, they never heard. I don't know about you, but by the end of my life, I pray that we see a restoration of what happened in the upper room in this house and other houses. Wouldn't it be amazing to get to a place where we were together and tongues of fire appeared above our head. It's not just seen in a film called Harry Potter. It's in the church and the people in the city will come to the church and say, I haven't seen nothing like that in all the sorcery and all the witchcraft and all the films. Is, is this okay? Holy Spirit, he, he moves like the wind. He's beyond our understanding. I'm, I'm feeling this thing tonight. He is beyond our understanding of how or when he moves. Completely beyond our power. He moves as a comforter at times. He moves as something convicting us at times. He moves in silent ways. He moves in mighty ways. In one text, like in Acts 2, he's coming in a room like a mighty windstorm. But we see in another text when Elijah is waiting to hear from God, there's a strong wind comes that's tearing into the mountains. And the scripture said, but God was not in the wind. He wasn't in fire. It says that he was in a still, small voice. The consistent thing is, is that the Holy Spirit manifests as he wants 
And I want to be the kind of church that depends not on one man to discern the Spirit, but a company of people linked together in agreement to go wherever the Holy Spirit wants to go and however. That we not make shouting the normative display of God, but that we simply do whatever He wants. Whether that be an hour of worship or an hour of on our face in silence, we just say yes. Whatever you want. Can someone just shout whatever? Whatever you want. Acts 2, when the wind blew, everyone was filled. Everyone in that room received the same manifestation. And I just prophesy a day when the church is filled and everyone is in agreement instead of most people looking at a few people in the front in confusion. Filled and in agreement with what's going on. Holy Spirit manifests in different ways and we've got to learn how to submit to the wind. But in submitting to the wind, in submitting to the Holy Spirit, we have to understand a very important principle. There's a good wind and there's a bad wind. Yeah. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do His work, build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come together in such unity that our faith and knowledge of God's Son, that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. So we see that the point of equipping is for maturity, and then he explains maturity in verse 14. We will no longer be immature like children, and we will not be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Like the lie of, it's not your place to judge. Scripture actually doesn't say that. It says, before you judge, examine yourself. That's the full context of the Scripture. You know, when you talk to people about sin, they say, you're not called to judge me. Well, actually, if I'm examining the fact that I, am, I have issues myself, I can judge the thing in you. God loves you, but doesn't love the thing you always do. The church has the call to do that and to stand on that truth. And if I love you, and if you love me, we will keep each other accountable to the thing that we're called to judge. We will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. One of the keys to not being influenced by the wrong wind is the accountability of being fitted perfectly together. For instance, the church, it says, should be built on the foundations of the apostle and the prophet. The issue so far along in the church is that we get to a place where the churches are built on one gift. Sometimes it's just the apostle. Sometimes it's just the prophetic. Sometimes it's just a teaching. Sometimes it's just an evangelism. Sometimes it's just pastoral. And he says, you, a 
perfectly unified church for the purpose of maturity and destiny cannot be one thing. It has to be perfectly knitted together so that each part is doing what it's supposed to do. All of us are needed together. I want you to hear me on that. All of us, every single person, including the ones who have skipped out tonight and are not here. Oh, he's, he's feisty. I love y'all if you're watching. We, it's okay, y'all. People know my humor. Chill out. We are all knitted together. Each and every one of us are needed. There is something in you that this house needs to operate in its fullest potential. And you have got to stop believing the lie that you're not good enough and you're not qualified. The Holy Spirit is so good that he says, I, my fa the Father sees you as so good that I will give you whatever gift you need to complete his assignments. That's how good God is. He says, I know you don't have everything, but I do. Tap into this unlimited resource called intimacy. Moving by the wrong wind will cause significant issues in the church. Because what happens is a new idea comes about and we look at it as good. We look at it as interesting and we start pursuing that wind. Because we have to start asking the question, are we going after God or are we pursuing a manifestation? Are we going after God or are we going after wind? It's not that we should pursue wind. Is we should pursue intimacy with the Father so that we can discern what is the wind. As we get into Hosea, is this okay? As we're getting into Hosea chapter 8, we actually see an issue of wind in the people of God. In Hosea chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, it says this, sound the alarm. The enemy descends like an eagle on the people of the Lord. Because they've broken my covenant and revolted against my law. Now Israel pleads with me, help us for you are our God. But it's too late. Dang. People are calling out to God and he's like, too late. The people of Israel have rejected what's good and now their enemies will chase after them. This passage starts off saying, sound the alarm. Some translations actually say, let the trumpet sound. Back in this time, the trumpet sounded for one purpose. It was to gather together the people, call the army together to get ready to go to war. But the sound, the alarm in this passage actually wasn't necessarily given to Israel. It was actually given to the Assyrians because God was saying the people of Israel, Israel are now going to reap what they have sowed and I'm going to call on the Assyrians to come and judge, destroy, obliterate Israel. He says, you keep sowing into yourself, not worshiping me, so I've given a sound to judge you. And now you're going to reap what you have sown. So God says, of course, Israel, your response is, help us, God. I've allowed the enemy to come at you. Of course you're calling out to me now. But God says, your cry is not sincere and it's too late. 
Because a sincere cry is not help me God after a life of not including him. A sincere cry is calling on the intimacy and relationship with God and allow him to decide how or when to help. It's really easy to say help me when you have sown a life of not including him. He's not looking for help me. He's looking for God, I want you. They weren't wanting God. They wanted God to bail them out. A sincere cry is not just help me, it's I want to know you. And many people today are walking in a judgment according to not knowing him. Matthew 7 says, many will call on my name and I will say to them, I never knew you. Verse 23 says, but I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me. This is New Testament. You who break God's laws. He says, get away from me. Don't play that game. Don't come to me expecting to pull on a marriage you've never been a part of. Come to me because you want me, not because you need my help. A cry of repentance is not, God, I need you because my situation is bad. Unfortunately, that's most of our altar calls today. A cry of repentance is not, God, I need you because my situation is bad. A cry of repentance is, God, I'm tired of living without you. So I'm going to turn the other way and start living in a direction that is all about seeking you face to face. And out of seeking him face to face, he helps. Because when you seek him, he leads you into paths of righteousness. He leads you into right pathways taking you out of the predicament and walking into his. The scripture actually goes on a few verses later and says this in 26 to 27. Anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and the floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. When the wrong kind of wind comes, you don't discern it as wrong and you submit to it rather than speak against it. You're not strong in the Lord, so it overtakes you rather than you commanding it to go. When you're not in a life, in a posture of seeking God, winds will come and beat on your house, beat on your life, beat on your circumstance. And if you were a house or a temple built on the solid foundation of relationship, the wind wouldn't stand a chance to affect you, the wrong wind. But if you're not building your life in a relationship with God, don't be surprised that by any subtlety of wind, like deception, like lies, like bad management skills, your house will come crumbling down. As Hosea says, you live a life rejecting what is good, and now you have become prey to the enemy. There's someone in this room that preached a message one time that said, I am not prey. Y'all know who that is? I am not prey by Rene. Uh, so lame. But I want to see, even, even the baby cried out, hallelujah. But I want to add something to that. Because the enemy roams around like a lion looking for prey to devour. And you can claim you're not prey all day, but your obedience is the one 
that backs up that claim. You can claim all day you ain't pray, but if you ain't obedient, when the winds come, you're going to find out how solid your foundation is. You see, obedience is not about let me get it right so that I can be right. Obedience is I want to be strengthened in relationship with God so that when the winds of life come that are not of God and are not of the Spirit and are not what He wants from me, I will not collapse. I will stand strong because my strength is not in the house I built. The strength is in the house I built in the name of Jesus. And then Hosea goes on about this lifestyle of disobedience. Is this okay? Is it okay. He says in verse 4, the people have appointed kings without my consent. Can I just stop there? It is, I'm going to rant for a minute. I get so tired of reading things on social media about how everyone can have their own version of truth as long as they agree Jesus is Christ. I'm sorry, but that is the biggest pile of junk that the church has embraced. Truth does not change based off of your interpretation. There is one way, one truth. And if scripture says that, that you have appointed leaders without my consent, then that tells us, even though Romans says every leader is ordained by God, we have to understand every leader we choose is not ordained by God. Because we can choose leaders that were never meant to be leaders. In fact, in the passage that talks about every leader is ordained by God, it's talking about in the kingdom of government and, and lineage and heritage. The issue is in a lot of the governments, the ones that were supposed to be leaders were murdered or killed by pride and jealousy. So don't believe this false doctrine that whoever God puts in is who God wanted. But God can redeem that wrong transaction. I was listening to a prayer tonight up here on the stage before worship. And I heard someone pray this. Even if Raphael Warnock gets chosen, God transform him so that he is the best leader under you. Don't think God can't change the people you disagree with. It says, the people have appointed kings without my consent. They're putting people in government that are not the ones I want. Princes without my approval. By making idols for themselves from their silver and gold, they brought about their own destruction. Oh, Samaria, I reject this calf. Y'all know what the calf, the, the golden one? This idol that you've made, my fury burns against you. How long will you be incapable of innocence? This calf you worship, O Israel, was crafted by your own hands. It's not God. Therefore, it must be smashed to bits. He says, you have selected leaders without my direction, and you've made beautiful idols that have to be broken. Here's the funny thing. That, that phrase, I reject this calf, literally translates, your calf stinks. What you worship, the way you worship, how you're doing it, it stank. 
God doesn't want stink. He's very to the point that he says he wants a pleasing aroma. And all throughout Scripture, pleasing aroma was a sacrifice and a good offering from his people. Even in the New Testament, a sacrifice of obedience was called pleasing aroma. In 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16, it says this, Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. And who is adequate for such a task as this? The problem is, this is what the church has done. Because a good aroma smells bad to certain people, we compromise to, to please the people's senses rather than God's. And we start building systems and teachings and ideals that God calls stank calf. We compromise on truths to tickle ears. And God says what was a pleasing aroma is now stinky. Idols are not just statues. Idols are not just pagan gods. Idols is anything can become a god or an idol when you adjust your sacrifice or adjust your obedience to anything other than God. The, the question is, how do people get there? Because many people make adjustments to please people. We need to embrace the idea that we are going to be offensive to people who don't know him. We need to embrace the idea that the aroma that comes from the church will be stank to the world, but pleasing to the Father. And we never need to compromise on the aroma that comes out of this house. We did something different tonight. We embraced prophetic declaration. Was that okay? Here's the truth of it. It can be weird to a lot of people that have called this church their home for the past nine years because it's something different. And they're either going to adjust their understanding for the pleasing aroma or leave because it's stinky. You know what 1 Corinthians 14 talks about, about prophecy and meetings and congregations? It says that when you, it's not up there. It says when you prophesy in a meeting, this is 1 Corinthians 14. It says unbelievers and those without understanding will be convicted, fall to their knees on the ground and call out to God and say that he is real. And I think it's a sad day that the church has not allowed that in worship gatherings because of time constraints. Let me ask you, do you want God to do what he wants to do in this city? Do you want the things of God to manifest here on the earth? Do you want the city to turn upside down where the entire city is a pleasing aroma going up to heaven? Then we cannot limit what God wants to do in here because you've got plans after church. 
or that went way too long. The disciples were in the upper room for days. And we get offended if it's more than two hours. And God says, you expect me to move? Because what do we do with church? We are searching for when to move in two hours rather than I want to get intimate with Father God. And intimacy requires something out of your comfortability. Because quite frankly, your comfort is probably the stank calf. Is this? That's going to be the new hashtag, stank calf. Verse 7 in Hosea 8. They have planted the wind and will harvest a whirlwind. The stalks of grain wither and produce nothing to eat. And even if there is any grain, foreigners will eat it. The whirlwind that Israel was about to reap was that the Assyrians that God was speaking to sound the alarm? They were going to invade Israel in about 722 B.C., destroy Samaria, and deport the Israelites. That's history. That's what was happening. And God tells Hosea, they've planted the wind and will harvest a whirlwind. They went after wind and searched for wind. They got the wrong wind instead of abiding in the only wind. They planted a wind and harvested a whirlwind. They, they, got, they were searching for something other than God. They were searching for knowledge outside of God. They were searching for sustenance outside of God. And they got it and they planted it. He says, you got the wrong wind because you, you were searching for wind rather than abiding in me. And when you got the wrong wind, you sowed that wind. You sowed the wrong worship. You sowed the idols. You sowed the idolatry. And now you will harvest a whirlwind. It's the process of sowing and reaping. The type of seed you plant determines what grows, right? This is what we forget. You plant one kernel of corn, you can still reap an entire ear. It's, it's the principle of multiplication. So when you sow into a wrong thing, you will probably reap more than what you planted. Which is why it is so important to posture ourselves in repentance. Because you're not necessarily trying to, 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 to just get forgiveness. You want to start sowing differently. There's not a such thing as an insignificant sowing. So even in the seemingly insignificant shifts by following the winds of the Holy Spirit, the sowing of obedience will reap incredible harvests. When we sow into something like God says, open up the prophetic, we're, we are not going to know what's going to happen because of that. Marilyn, may I share what you told me at intercession? Miss um, Marilyn over here came up to me Saturday or Monday during intercession, and was telling, she, she said, hey, I haven't really had a chance to talk to you. You've been coming here, what, two months now at least? And, um, and when, when did he pass? A year ago, Marilyn's husband passed away. And she said for the past year, Saturday nights have been really tough for her because that was their night. And she came up to me and said, I want to tell you thank you because when I started coming here on Saturday nights, 
I no longer grieve Saturdays. Saturdays have been redeemed. Right? Why do I say that? A, ins- a seemingly insignificant shift five years ago harvested that. There is nothing insignificant when we say yes to God. I was officiating a funeral two weeks ago of a student of mine back in my first youth ministry days, a long time ago, back in probably, I started in 2005, 2006, 2006. I was there about six and a half years. And it, it, was, it was my first time in ministry. I was a jerk most of the time. You know, I thought I knew everything. You know, I'm not like that at all today. And um, why y'all laughing? And um, I, uh, I was talking to the student, and she, and she was telling me these stories of how some of the teenagers back then told her they're raising their kids different than how they were raised because of the teachings in chapel. It's one of those moments where you think you're sowing insignificant seed. And then you hear how it's been growing and harvesting. There's nothing insignificant about what you do when you go home tonight, like praying over your children as they sleep. It's not a, it's, there's, no, there's no such thing as an insignificant seed. When you go home tonight and you pray with your husband or wife for the first time before you go to bed, there's nothing insignificant about that seed. When you go to dinner and thank God for the unhealthy food, <laughs> there's nothing insignificant about that seed. That was a joke. Some of you will get it. But are we going after the right wind? You see, the people of God in Israel, they were sowing into the wrong things. And God says, all these little things you've been sowing, idol worship, Making decisions without me? Can I, let's get on that for a second. I wonder how many decisions you make day to day without consulting the Father. And you consider them insignificant. He says, you're going to reap a whirlwind of destruction. And the church will fall if we sow into the wrong wind. That's why he talks about a remnant. Because there's got to be a company of people linked together in such unity that we're willing to, to chase after God, not a movement, so that we can move where he wants. We don't need to seek a movement in the church. We need to seek the Father, which results in a move. We don't need to pray and seek for revival. We must simply start to revive with his breath by way of seeking intimate face-to-face encounters every day. Ecclesiastes 1, 12-14 says, I, the teacher, this is Solomon speaking, was king of Israel. I lived in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to search for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything being done under heaven. I soon discovered that God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. I observed everything going on under the sun, and really it's all meaningless, like chasing the wind. 
Solomon speaking. He says, what we do is chase meaningless things instead of chasing the one that gives understanding to all things. It's always easy to find answers out of pride and self-reliance. But when we seek that out of our own self, rather than a knowledge that comes from seeking to know him, it results in a whirlwind of consequence. Think about Adam and Eve. They consume from the tree of knowledge instead of being satisfied in the pursuit of a knowledge that simply came from walking with the Father. They were not tempted by tasty fruit. They were tempted with, is there a knowledge outside relationship? When you sow into intimacy with God, you will reap knowledge with no consequence. The problem with the church is we try to get the knowledge without intimacy with God. And many seek the winds of blessing and breakthrough instead of leaning into intimacy that manifests the winds of blessing and breakthrough. Hear me. It's not let me seek the blessing. It's not let me seek the healing. It's not let me seek the breakthrough. It's not let me seek the prophecy. It's, not, it's let me seek him who manifests wind that looks like healing, breakthrough, prophecy, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, tongues, interpretation of tongues, miraculous signs and wonders. Stop seeking that because it's the wrong wind. Because Scripture says that there will be false forms of signs and wonders by way of witchcraft and sorcery. So if you search for healing, you may find it in the wrong wind. So we start doing things like putting crystals in our cars to get better energy. We're seeking the wind and not the Father. Proverbs 11, 29-30. Those who bring trouble on their families will inherit the wind. The fool will be a servant to the wise. The seed of good deeds become a tree of life. A wise person wins friends. What wind? The winds that cause the house to collapse. It says, those who bring trouble on their families inherit wind. What wind do they inherit when they bring trouble on their families? The winds that blow against the house, built on sand. And he says, when you sow good deeds, you will reap the tree of life. You will eat of life out of your good deeds. What good deeds? Being obedient to the commands of God. Well, Kyle, how do you discern good wind from bad wind? Right? That's, that's the question. How do I discern it? It's simply this. Intimacy with the Father and connection to his people. Do you hear what I said? Yeah. Intimacy with the Father, connection to his people. You don't have to find 25 points of how do I discern the wind. It's get in relationship with the Father and connected to his people. Why? We are commanded to not forsake the gathering of the saints, the gathering of the church. Why? It keeps us connected to help discern the wind. 
Don't expect God to bail you out when you stay disconnected and start walking down paths of wrong wind because when you stay connected, no one will allow you to walk down that wrong path. You bail out. It's I pop. How do I get bailed out of my circumstance? I posture myself for intimacy, not rescue. Because when you sow intimacy, you reap rescue. Are y'all? Church has turned salvation into a prayer at the end of a service rather than an invitation to relationship. Isn't it funny how the scripture tells us Holy Spirit leads people to know him by way of salvation in many ways that we don't know, yet the only way we know is a sinner's prayer. You got to get saved by saying, I believe in Jesus, I repent of my sins, this, this rhetoric we've made in the church. And Jesus says, the way he reveals himself to those, you, you, you can't even tell when and where it comes from. And what we've done is we've made a system to get results that we can measure. Instead of simply saying, hey, everyone who's in this room, everyone who's in this church, everyone who's under the sound of this voice, seek him. He wants you. He wants relationship. He wants intimacy. That's the true salvation call. Because I can say yes to a salvation call, never so relationship, and he'll say, I never knew you. I never knew knowing. I want to know you. I want you to know me. James 4.8 says, come close to God. God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts. Your loyalty is divided between God and the world. John 15, 4 through 5, remain in me, I'll remain in you. The Bible is full of this, if you, then I. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine. You cannot be fruitful unless you remain. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you draw close, he will draw close. If you remain, he will remain. When you seek him and not wisdom, but when you seek to know him, you get the wisdom. There's a circumstance in my life. How do I know if it's God or not? Talk to him and not 45 church people. So that he will direct you to the one that might have the confirming word. Is this okay? He goes on in verses 8 through 10. The people of Israel have been swallowed up. They lie among the nations like an old discarded pot, like a wild donkey looking for a mate. They've gone up to Assyria. The people of Israel have sold themselves, sold themselves to many lovers. But though they have sold themselves to many allies, I will now gather them together for judgment. Then they will writhe under the burden of the great king. We just read that you reap wisdom and life out of obedience to intimacy. And it says wise people reap good friends. 
But this passage says they weren't doing that. They weren't being intimate with God. They weren't having a relationship with God. It says these people of Israel were lying among the nations. They were making friendships and allies and relationships that God never wanted them to make. Because they were looking for safety and treaties. They were looking for, for breakthrough in worldly relationships. And because of that, he says they were swallowed up and they were devoured. They were creating relationships of no value, and those relationships were devouring them. They made relationships with the Assyrians, the very ones that God will call to go and destroy them. You know what that means? When the Assyrians came, they probably thought it was to celebrate. They were allies. He says, you have sold yourself to many lovers. You have made treaty with too many things in your life that don't even look like God. You celebrate and get peace from things that God has nothing to do with. And you know what happens when you build relationship with too many lovers, with too many relationships, with too many God did not want that, God doesn't want your eyes in that type of movie, God doesn't want your ears in that type of music, God doesn't want you to agree with that type of leader, God doesn't want this. You know what happens when you make so many wrong treaties? Matthew 5, 13 says, you're the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it lost its flavor? Can you make anything salty again? It'll be thrown around and trampled and, and, and underfoot is worthless. When you embrace too many lovers outside of God, you lose your flavor. You lose your saltiness. You lose the flavor that transforms the world. Because you become more obsessed with the life of pleasing aroma to all the relationships rather than a pleasing aroma that will actually sift your relationships to bring in the right ones. Sometimes the best relationships are ones you're bought into that tell you all the stuff you never want to hear. But you reject it because you don't like the smell of it. When God loves the smell of the word. When God says, when you tell your brother you need to stop that and they reject you and God's like, bring it on. I love how that smells. And then when they reject you, he says, that's stank calf. Is this making sense? You get too many lovers, you get too many allies, you have so much conflicting voices that you don't know where to go. He says, you seek me and I'll sift all that for you. Because this is what we do. Well, we, 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 we go after the wrong wind to get the manifestation. Like we want the manifestation for new friends. So we seek the wind called a bar. You, you seek the wind, you, you, you need the manifestation of a word that brings you in the right direction. So you don't seek God, you seek the word. So you have these people who go to every church conference hoping it's the word, hoping it's the word, hoping it's the word, and they have no foundation in a church home. Because we seek the wind, not the one 
who manifests the wind. Is I need a prophetic word. No, you don't. You need intimacy. You want to know why people don't get words of knowledge? Because they seek words of knowledge. The more I'm learning and the more I'm studying, it's, the Bible is actually quite simple. Pursue him. It's it's. it's, it's, it's it's really that. He, he wants laid down lovers. He says, I, I, I want all of you. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means when you are walking outside of his path and into sin, that means there is a shortage of glory in your life. And he says, I want you to be sold out to me so there's no more shortage. Hosea 8.11. Israel has built many altars to take away sin. But these very altars become places for sinning. Even though I gave them all my laws, they act as if those laws don't apply to them. The people love to offer sacrifices to me, feasting on the meat, but I don't accept their sacrifices. I'll hold my people accountable for their sins. I will punish them. They will return to Egypt. They were creating ways for their sins to be taken care of, you know, like rosary beads, like lighting candles to represent your sin, like the space at a stage. There's an issue when the church presents a culture that there's a bigger move of Holy Spirit in a four-foot section in front of a man-made platform than your home. And what we'll do is... is we will adorn the false altars. And God's like... Well, you're feasting on the meat, but it's, 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 it's not me. Yeah, you're giving me sacrifices, but I'm not taking that. Because God lays it out. He says this in 1 John 1, 9, If you confess your sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from wickedness. And you know where you can do that? Anywhere. You don't have to come to church. Your life is an altar if you confess to him. He cleanses you. Confession actually comes out of the place of seeking a face-to-face -face encounter. When you're intimate in relationship, all the stuff that needs to be revealed for you to confess can be done right there in the privacy of your car in 8 a.m. traffic in Savannah because God knows there's enough time. Can someone say amen? When you're clean, and when you're cleansed of the wickedness from repentance out of, of, out of intimacy, out of simple confession, you know what he's doing? He's revealing true you to you. When you are in relationship with the Father and he reveals a need for repentance, this is what he's doing. He's saying, I'm showing you true you. 
Because you're recognizing that that's not a part of true you. It's not bad, bad. It's let me show you who you really are. And you go, oh, Lord, I give it to you. I'm walking the other direction. Your life, the life of intimacy and relationship with God, is a life revealing true you. And when you pursue the wrong winds, it causes a whirlwind of confusion. And we're living in a day where every decision in this world is made out of confusion and identity issues. I pray that we raise the kids of this house that they never have an identity issue. And I pray that we bring us all together in such unity that we never have identity issues. That everything we do is a pleasing aroma. That everything we do is a revealing of who we really are. I talked about this a little Wednesday night, but I'm in agreement with what a preacher said that I listened to not too long ago, that we actually labeled it wrong when we call it the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus wasn't being transfigured. He was being revealed. True him was being seen for the first time. It was something out of this world that was being revealed when, 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 when it was a different face and a different countenance. Jesus was being revealed with eyes that could not behold. When we walk in a life of intimacy with God, you're going to start to see yourself differently and you'll actually start to believe it. Like even though I was raised in a home that said you're not good, you actually start to believe that you are because he's revealing you. Verse 14 of Hosea 8, Israel has forgotten its maker. It's built great palaces, and Judah's been fortified at cities. Therefore, I will send them fire on their cities and burn up their fortresses. The evidence of forgetting our maker is that if we are reaping a life of destruction. Because God does not promise that for those who seek him. So we've got to stop blaming the enemy when things fall apart. My life's falling apart. The enemy did it. No. You agreed with the wrong wind. You made some bad decisions. And if we take responsibility for sowing into that wind, we can start building a relationship for God to manifest blowing of wind in the right direction. It's like this in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The things of God are great, but will seem strange when we are giving ourselves to seeking the wind rather than seeking his face. And oftentimes we agree with the wrong wind because it looks natural and logical. But when we seek God, we start to discern the right wind that only makes sense by way of seeking. It says they are spiritually discerned. 
You know how things are spiritually discerned? You start to know what he looks like. So when a thing comes across your path, you don't spend, you know, three months trying to discern it. It's, is this God or not? And can we get real? If we're having problems discerning a thing, we need to start saying, you know, I need to get on my face before God even more and submit because it shouldn't be this hard. God, show me. I want, I want a face-to-face encounter with you so that when this thing comes in my path, I know immediately, is it God or not? I, I don't know about you, but that's my prayer. Because I know I'm not, I'm not discerning everything like that. Are you? It's called for intimacy. It's called for face-to-face encounters. The beauty of all this is just as you reap a whirlwind of destruction, God says, if you seek me, it will cause a whirlwind of manifestation. Acts 2, they were seeking him, and a whirlwind, a good wind, came into the room, manifested what they needed. Language for the purpose of unity. You know, in Acts chapter 1, Peter was setting order, but in Acts chapter 2, I believe, is when Peter actually preached his first sermon. Because think about what happened. He was setting order, replacing apostles in Acts 1. Acts 2, they were seeking God. A wind came through. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were speaking in languages. And all of a sudden, the one called Simon and weak and as crazy as a weed being tossed in the wind, all of a sudden, he starts standing up and preaching. Because in a moment, being filled out of a posture of intimacy with the Father, it was no longer, I'm this loser fisherman who never got it right. It was, this is what God says. And many were added to the church that day. What happens with face-to-face encounters and intimacy with God is you will stop convincing yourself that you are enough. And in a moment, even though you you, you may have never been a preacher, you may have never been a teacher, you may have never been someone that grew up in church, in a moment, you will start speaking on behalf of God because you know who you are, because you saw yourself in his eyes. And the wind starts to blow. You start to recognize the moment. And that same passage of Acts 2, when the people looked, some people said they were drunk. Some people wondered what's going on. You know why they thought they were drunk? They were seeing with natural eyes. And many times things seem strange or a weird aroma when all we've learned how to do is look in natural eyes. Like we don't understand the point of praying for someone we don't like because you see through natural eyes. Well, that's just not how I'm wired, Kyle. No, no, you haven't understood. You, you have not seen true you if you think that is not your actual natural. Your real natural is actually supernatural. Can I prove it to you by tying this into Christmas? There's a prophecy in Micah chapter 5. Don't put it up there yet. I saw it. When Micah 
prophesied, Micah and Hosea were actually overlapping timelines in the 8th century. So about the time Hosea was prophesying all this about the Assyrians and all that kind of thing that we just read in 8, Micah makes a prophecy. In Micah 5, 1 through 2, it says this, mobilize, marshal your troops. Sounds very familiar, right? Sound the alarm? Get your troops together. The enemy is laying siege to Jerusalem. They will strike Israel's leader in the face with a rod. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, sure, you're only a small village among the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. Micah announces, Israel, you're going to be humbled, and you're going to be defeated. You're going to be destroyed. But out of that hum humility, a ruler is going to come. It was the prophecy of Jesus. It was the prophecy of the Messiah coming out of the humble people. Here's the thing that God showed me. Bethlehem was never a great or influential city. But the ruler needed for the world came out of the most humbled, non-influential place. Jesus may have come out of a non-influential place, non-influential circumstances, but Jesus didn't begin there. Look at the prophecy in verse 2 again. It says, A ruler will come out of Israel whose origins are in the distant past. His origins were of the past. The origins of the Messiah were not rooted in Bethlehem. It was before the foundations of the world. But he was manifested in human form in Bethlehem. You have all been revealed in many different circumstances, in many different non-influential places, but your origins are of a distant past. He says, I knew you before you were in your mama's womb. I knew you before you were revealed. So when you seek me, you're going to see the one that I knew. And out of Pooler, Georgia, I want to reveal the you that was from a distant past. I want to reveal the you that was supernatural. I want to reveal the you that walked with me in the cool of the day. I want to reveal the you that has no limits because you look just like me. I want to reveal the you that governs your home. I want to reveal the you that is ready for the prodigals to return. I want to reveal you to the you that you don't believe because you are of a distant origin. Stop defining yourself by your generational curses because your original lineage had nothing to do with an earthly one. God's speaking to you right now, isn't he? Yeah. He, he, God, God wants you to know tonight you are good. You're not, you're not messed up. You're, you're perfected in him. And there are no limits on you despite what anyone has told you. There's no limits on you. All you have to do is submit to God, show me who I am because no one ever has.
He goes on in this prophecy, and this is what I'm closing with in verses 3 through 8. The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman's in labor and gives birth. Then at last his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land. He will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And then his people will live there undisturbed. He will be highly honored around the world. He will be the source of peace. When the Assyrians evade our land and break through our defenses, we will appoint seven rulers to watch over us, eight princes to lead us. They will rule Assyria with drawn swords and enter the gates of the land of Nimrod. He will rescue us from the Assyrians when they pour over the borders to invade our land. And then the remnant left in Israel will take their place among the nations. They will be like dew sent by the Lord or like rain falling on the grass, which no one can hold back, no one can restrain. The remnant left in Israel will take their place among the nations. They will be like a lion among the animals of the forest, like a strong young lion among flocks of sheep and goats, pouncing and tearing as they go with no rescuer in sight. The ruler will strengthen his remnant. You see, with the coming of the Messiah, the people who say yes to him, he says, I will strengthen you. And even though you may be small in number, what I'm doing in you will spread all over the world like dew and like rain. And he says, you'll be like lions, strong to accomplish every task. But we have to be a people that seek him. Not the manifestation, not the wind, but seek him so that we are moved in the direction when the wind blows. It takes us all in a direction as his remnant, as his people, as a people willing to say yes, that offer up a pleasing aroma that may be strange and weird to everyone else, but we are a people willing to say yes because we're seeing ourselves for the first time. All from one posture, intimacy. I encourage everyone tonight as we leave this place. We leave not searching the wind. We leave wanting more relationships, seeking the Father, so that when all the winds blows, we'll catch the one that says, that's God. So that he will be revealed in all the earth. Amen. Let's stand. Can we give God praise tonight? Come on. Give God praise tonight. God, you are so good. You are perfect. We thank you that you have rescued us. You have redeemed us. There's going to be people up here ready to pray for you tonight. If you need prayer of agreement with anything in your life, whether it be salvation or whether it be restoration, you come up here and we're going to pray over you. But God, right now, we just pray and we thank you that you don't want to do anything except you want us. So we no longer call ourselves lowly and unworthy. We embrace a version of us that is only seen in your eyes. You call us pure. You call us worthy. You call us kings and priests. And today, God, we say yes. 
and we don't want to try to seek what it looks like to be a king or a priest by any other way than looking in your eyes. Let your eyes that look like fire consume anything in us that is not true version of the us that is from a distant past. Origins not of this world. God, let us be a peculiar people who are obsessed with an image that is only as you see us. And as we seek you, God, I just declare, let your winds blow. And we go wherever you want us to go, God. I declare that this is a new day in this house. And from this day forward, we say yes to what you want to reveal. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love you guys.